and welcome to the first episode of this new series of Gibraltar Stories podcasts. This week I'm taking you back to Friday the 5th of July when Gibraltar hosted its 13th annual Calentita Food Festival. It took place here in Casemate Square, the scene for many big cultural events here on the rock. Although this year it was different, it was known as Games Square in honour of the Gibraltar 2019 NatWest International Island Games, which were about to start the very next day. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this year's Calentita. Always a brilliant night. Calentita made its first appearance back in 2007. Owen Smith has been one of the organisers from the start. He explained to me what the event's about. Galantina is a food festival uh, where we try to showcase Gibraltar's multicultural community. Um, So what we do is we invite groups, uh, associations, clubs uh, and some businesses to uh, come down, set up stalls that represent the food from all of the different backgrounds and nations and communities that make up Gibraltar's overall community. And how did it come about? Well, um, in 2007, uh, the then Minister for Culture, who was uh, Fabian Benent, uh, was trying to um, sort of give the Spring Festival uh, sort of uh, more prominence. And he decided that he would like to organise something to end the festival uh, with a bit of a bang. So what he did is he asked several people to come up with ideas for, uh, for doing that. And Galantita was the idea that I came up with, and he liked it, so he asked us to go ahead and do it. In you know, in the first year, it was it was pretty small. It took place, I think, in May on a bank holiday weekend. Um, so Gibraltar was very very quiet, but uh, we had about um, nine or ten stalls, and I think probably quite importantly, we had a really good stall from the Moroccan community, a really good stall from the Hindu community, and. The uh, everybody that came down, uh, you know, really enjoyed the event, really threw themselves into it. And I think people felt immediately that it was something a little bit different. And it's grown quite a bit since then. Yeah, well, we've been here 10 years and we've seen it develop over the years. And certainly our first spring that we were here we mm-hmm. were we were told by locals you need to go to Canantita to experience it it's unlike any other Friday night mm-hmm. in Gibraltar so uh, it's um, it's really developed over the years hasn't it it's kind of expanded out of casemates and, and right, yeah. into the bus station and beyond yeah like I said I mean when we started we had about uh, nine or ten stalls they were just like patio tents um, and a small number of very enthusiastic stall uh, runners or people running stalls and uh, and a few stores that we ran ourselves, um, and basically I think that um, you know food is not a very difficult thing to like. I think people really like the idea of celebrating Gibraltar's multicultural community because um, it's a very important aspect of Gibraltarian identity. Um, it was a slightly different event. Uh, it was an event that was very very family friendly, which is always a sort of positive thing in in Jib, and I think. But I think the most unique thing about it was that it was an event that you could really see different groups of the community coming out and celebrating it together, which is something which is not so obvious on the many other occasions when Gibraltar gets together as a community. And I think um, that those ingredients combined um, to encourage people to enjoy it and be, probably most importantly, really take it to heart 
So I think it's an event that has um, become like almost an invented tradition in Gibraltar, uh, which is, you know, it's a really great thing. I think it was definitely helped along the way because the Ministry of Culture also really liked it. And they decided that we should do a few things that really boosted the attendance, like in the middle years, which was, uh, you know, we started doing sort of like a bit of a show and we had fireworks and that sort of thing. So it assumed, uh, um, you know, quite a significant prominence in the local social calendar. And, uh, and you know, it continued to grow and grow and grow. In fact, it grew to a point where we decided that it was no longer safe to have a fireworks display. Um, so we've stopped that, but people keep on coming and uh, and the event keeps on growing. So I think we've been more or less about the same in terms of the number of people coming. We've been about the same for the last few years, but it is now thousands and thousands. And we started out with a few hundred. So Yes, it's, it's a wonderful, inclusive event. And certainly this year you were helped, of course, by the fact that the Island Games kicked off the day after and it was wonderful to be there and see people in their team colours from the Cayman Islands, Gotland and everything so there was mm-hmm. a truly international flavour of the attendees as well as the tents. Yeah that's right I mean it was um, the event it, in the very first year it took place in May and then very quickly after that moved into June uh, and it's taken place in June the weekend changes from year to year but it's generally around the 20th of June every year but this year I think the Minister for Culture who's also the Minister for Sport decided it would be a great idea to have the event to kick off the Island Games as being a really good way of introducing all the people coming from outside to Gibraltar and what a diverse community we are. And I completely agree with you. It's very, very gratifying to see so many people coming from all those different islands and experiencing a little bit of Gibraltar and what it means to be a Gibraltarian. Um, and probably I imagine that not so many of them could enjoy all of the foods because I think certainly if I was an athlete, I'd be a bit reluctant to uh, be eating, you know, street fried chicken, the, you know, the day before I run a half marathon. But I think they certainly got a flavour of, of what it means to be Gibraltarian and what sort of warm and welcoming community we are. Over the years, Calantita has been ahead of the curve in terms of environmentally friendly ways of hosting a festival, offering prizes for those who bring their own plates and cutlery to cut down on waste, as well as inviting guest speakers and chefs to talk about how they, and in turn we, can do more to help our planet. We started in 2007, we introduced our first environmental policy in 2011, and uh, principally because uh, myself and my colleague uh, Jonathan Scott, who is who's, who runs the festival alongside me, uh, you know, it's something of uh, of a personal. The environment is a is a personal interest of ours, and uh, we have always felt very very strongly about trying to reduce the environmental impact of this event. Um, it's um, you know many uh, events generally because of their sort of uh, uh, flash in a pan nature can be quite uh, wasteful. And food festival in particular, with all of its um, all the uh, the need to use um, you know cutlery and crockery to serve food, to make it, to to keep it, and to to hand it out, um, can and and also leftover food can be um, visually at least uh, particularly um, wasteful. It's very very obvious, you know, when you get to the end of the night and you have stores that haven't sold food or you look at the bins or you look at the mess on the floor and you get, you know, it really hits you. Um, so back in 2011, we decided we really needed to do something about that. And so we introduced a whole raft of policies about how we run the event and what people who take part have to do. 
which were primarily at that time geared towards uh, food waste, to reducing food waste. So we very quickly became a festival with zero food waste because we made sure that anything that was left over had a place to go. If it was fit for human consumption, it would go uh, to a place where it could be consumed by humans. (laughs) If it wasn't fit for human consumption, it would go to um, the animal park, so it would be eaten by the animals. Um, And in that way, we made use of all of the leftover food. So the other thing that we did was we worked very closely with all the people running stores to make sure that they made roughly the right amount of food so that they themselves didn't have too much to get rid of. And we also made them think about what they they themselves would do with food that they had left over. So increasingly, it would not fall to us to deal with it. Um, Then a few years after that, we decided that we had to reduce the amount of uh, disposable plates and cutlery that were being used so we worked together with the Newton store and I think we've been doing this now for six or seven years or something uh, which is to encourage people to bring their own uh, plates and cutlery and reuse them at the festival instead of using uh, plates and cutlery that were being provided by um, by the stalls and alongside the actual festival we run a newspaper which we uh, publish every year um, although this year we took a, a skip, this year we just did a, an event program, but normally do a full sort of like 40 plus page newspaper, which is all concentrates very strongly on community and environmental themes. Um, so those are the ways up until a couple of years ago, those are the prominent ways that we were working to make sure that our environmental impact and footprint was as small as possible. And then last year, for the first year, we took the step of completely banning um, single use plastic. Um, and we thought it was the right time to do it because we felt that, first of all, there was an increasing need um, uh, to take that step. Secondly, we felt that, um, although, like you said, it was slightly ahead of the curve in terms of what other festivals were doing um, and what uh, the state of the law at the time, um, we felt that we had reached the stage when uh, the public and the people running the stores would accept that change and also we had reached a stage when the alternatives, there were sufficient alternatives available to enable people to make the change. So we decided to completely ban single-use plastic, which we did last year, and was uh, it was very successful, and we repeated it last year. It's, it's quite hard work from an organisational point of view, because obviously you have to make sure that everybody understands um, what you mean by that, and it's actually a very, very strict rule. Um, we don't allow even um, the sort of plant-based plastics that um, currently, even though the the law has now changed in Gibraltar, um, currently still uh, sort of legal, but we were not allowing them. I think the only exception we make for that is for uh, foods that have to be covered. So quite a lot of um, uh, compostable uh, card or paper containers will have a plant-based plastic top which is sometimes an environmental requirement. So that is the only situation where we allow a plant-based plastic, but we don't allow a whole container to be made out of it. So it's a pretty strict rule, and, um, and it's one that obviously requires all of our participants to take that uh, step with us, which all of them have. And it's been um, challenging, but also um, quite gratifying to see that it hasn't been as bad as one might expect and um, and the other aspect which is also quite gratifying is that we did do it well before lots of other major festivals you know even in the world you know I think this is the first year that Glastonbury tried to do it um, and I know that lots of other festivals this year have done it but um, so it was quite nice to see that we were a step ahead as it were. 
Definitely, you were leading by example. And also your speakers who were, were performing on the stage mm-hmm. and Corral Road were also speaking on environmental themes too, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, as I said, it's uh, the, um, the environmental impact of food um, and the, in particular the food industry is very, very significant. I think when a lot of people think about um, the environmental um, emergency that we are facing as a planet, uh, they predominantly think about um, air transport and marine transport, but there are other very, very significant, in fact, more significant industries uh, that contribute a great deal more to particularly CO2 emissions, and food is one of them. And, um, you know, one thing that we have done for many years is we've tried our best to encourage um, plant-based stalls, so vegan stalls, and I think the first time we managed to get a stall selling vegan food was about six years ago, where we really literally had to go to the person who was running this restaurant and plead with them to come and run a stall. And we managed to get him to do it for two years uh, before he said it was too much work for him. Uh, but in the intervening few years, since he said he couldn't do it anymore, um, that you know, vegan-based stalls have gone from you know being... Uh, us having to twist somebody's arm to to run a stall this year we had i think just under 10 percent of the stalls were were plant-based so um so that's very very positive and the um one of the innovations that we introduced this year on our kitchen stage was to invite a number of speakers to come and give presentations uh that focus on the environmental impact of food uh, the environmental impact in particular of consuming meat and also the environmental impact of uh, what are normal arable farming practices which are prevalent all over Europe but in particular um, in southern Spain highly noticeable with the desertification of basically of Andalusia with the um, monocropping of um, olives um, so we invited a couple of speakers to come and talk about that um, and it's something that we're definitely going to um, develop and roll out over the over the coming years. Um, so it's definitely as a food festival, it's very important for us to be to make sure that um, we're thinking about that as we as we are, but also to encourage other people to think about it and to encourage people to continue to enjoy food, but to be conscious of the the impact that their choices have. Yeah, and working at the festival, we get to be really Claire-Louise Foster is a chef at the Casbah, a plant-based restaurant here in Gibraltar. Claire-Louise was one of the chefs who took to the kitchen stage at Calentita this year to give a cookery demonstration. She's passionate about cooking and eating in a sustainable way. According to the UN's statistics and research, what's actually worse for the environment is the way in which we fish commercially. It's even worse than plastic, it's worse than the elevated temperature of the ocean so I thought it'd be really cool to come here and just speak my mind I guess and demonstrate that something that's plant-based is as tasty as something that people would use fish Certainly veganism and vegetarianism is so much more in the spotlight these days do you feel that maybe turning a corner in in making people to be more adventurous and, and give it a try? Yeah exactly 
the environment is calling to us to take a personal stance to something that we can do as a person like personally that's very 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 impactful is to just change our diet just stop eating meat stop having fish it's equally as bad to eat fish as it is meat and people don't seem to make that connection for some reason because the environment underwater is actually decreasing a lot faster than land and people don't know that as well that's very important because you have to think about the children kids and what we're doing to this earth and they really don't deserve it and you, you're based at the Casbah, a vegan restaurant here in Gibraltar. Yeah, yeah. Has that, have you seen in the time that you've been there that it's grown? It is. It is growing in a small community like Gibraltar. I, I was living in Toronto for a really long time, so the scene is quite large there. And here I see it growing all the time, and it's an amazing, great thing to see. Later in the evening, Vidya Heisel gave a fascinating talk about the desertification of our neighbour Andalusia, which has been caused by intensive farming practices. Less than a hundred years ago, we humans started farming extensively and intensively. We tried to make nature behave like a factory. We separated species and divided ecosystems in order to manage them in an easier, more productive way. The consequences weren't visible for a few decades, but slowly and constantly, with each season, we were depleting the soil of its nutrients, like a bank account that is being used and never replenished. Year after year, certain patches of land started to become less and less productive until they finally gave up. Then the desert started. I decided to come because it is a food festival and um, I'm very passionate about sustainability and I think people who are interested in food should also be interested in sustainability because it has to do with how the food is produced and uh, also um, you know, I'm, I'm also quite an advocate of vegetarianism and I was very excited when the organiser of, of the food festival also told me that there's a lot more vegan stalls and um, there's also someone else talking about sustainable agriculture. So um, it really interests me. I think there's a big movement now in, in the world, but especially in Europe, you know, to move towards sustainability because obviously global warming is a, you know, is an, you know, you can't, escape it you have to be aware that it's ha really happening and I think so many more people are getting interested in what we can do well I became interested in, in the fact that we we're living in a drought area and I was trying to find out how to increase the water table on my own land and it was then that I found out how um, the situation in Spain is very serious in terms of desertification and uh, maybe even many people haven't even heard that term, but it's, um, there's a very serious situation in Spain that the Zahara Desert is kind of encroaching into Spain. Um, Spain is rapidly turning into desert, and uh, already almost 30% of Spain is actually desert, and, and once land turns to desert, it can't be reversed. So um, the clock's ticking, and the, and the reasons that um, this is happening in Spain is partly because we're, we're close to Africa, you know, and we're very close to the Sahara Desert, and uh, we're getting a lot of heat from there, but also... Um, it's, it's the amount of um, industrial farming that's happening in Spain, 
which I think most people don't even realize has only been going on for 50 years. But industrial farming is actually destroying the land. And um, the land is becoming, yeah, it's, it's actually the, the chemicals and the way that the land is tilled and the monoculture farming is just depleting the soil. And what we need to do to reverse this like danger is to enrich the soil and um, find ways to nourish the soil rather than depleting it, which is what's happening. And the more and more the soil gets depleted, um, coupled with the fact of global warming and drought, um, I think within 10 years, like, like most of Spain is going to be turning into deserts. So people don't really realize this. And I think that it's very important that we get the message out and that, that we also start to understand that the way we've been farming is actually harming the land and that there are ways of farming in sustainable ways. And uh, yeah, like I said, I just became really interested in this um, five years ago because I have a lot of land here in Andalusia and um, I'm trying to find a way to care for that land in a responsible way. And so we're um, growing a food forest actually. We're, we've got, um, we're going to plant seven hectares of land with um, thousands and thousands of trees and everything in the food forest will be edible. And we're trying to demonstrate that it's possible to get a lot more production from a, a, a field by farming in this way than it is by farming in, norm, in sort of usual industrial ways. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an exciting project, but it's also, I, I actually feel a lot of responsibility, you know, like just even having land and knowing what the situation is. And so part of our reason for doing it is um, educational. And we want to try to educate as many people as possible um, to explain about what I've just said to you and uh, to show people how to farm in a different way. So I have a lot of experts who are involved who are actually doing it and um, we're, we're doing a lot of um, courses in permaculture. We have people volunteering and learning about permaculture. And we're also offering the introduction to permaculture courses at our place um, so that people can come and learn how they can take care of their own little piece of land in a sustainable way. This year's festival included 31 different stalls featuring everything from burritos to bratwurst and macaroons to Moroccan pinchitos and, of course, Gibraltarian calentita. If you haven't had the chance to experience calentita yet for yourself, next year hopefully it will be even better. Organiser Owen Smith has some interesting plans in the pipeline. The event is funded like on a two-year cycle with the, with the Ministry of Culture, so we now have to apply again for funding for the next two years. Um, we, so we haven't uh, made any actual fixed arrangements for next year, um, but we do have uh, an idea for a very big change that we're hoping to implement. It's something that we've been thinking about for three or four years, um, and I think um, next year might be the year that we, that we do it. I'm not going to say what it is, but <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty big. 
Um, so, and I think it will be a big improvement and it will be a big innovation, which I think will um, sort of rejuvenate the, uh, the festival a little bit. And that brings this episode about the Calentita Festival to a close. If you'd like to find out more about Calentita or about the permaculture work done by Vidya Heisel at Danya Dara, I've included links to their websites in the show notes for this episode. You can find those at gibraltarstories.com. You can also find the Casbar Restaurant on Facebook. Thanks very much for downloading and listening to this episode and for taking an interest in Gibraltar's stories. If you enjoyed the podcast, I'd love it if you'd leave a review on your chosen podcast provider. It would make my day and will help many other people find Gibraltar's stories that little bit easier in future. Don't forget you can listen back to any of the previous episodes at gibraltarstories.com as well as on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. And if you have a Gibraltar story that you'd like to share, please get in touch with me. You can do that through Facebook, Instagram or Twitter or by email to gibraltarstories at gmail.com. Until next week, goodbye for now and thanks very much for listening.